0: One. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Live at Nerdville. I'm here in New York City at Nerdville, Gotham. And today, my special guest, my friend, the legend, a man that we all as guitar players owe a huge debt of gratitude to, Mr. Walter Trout. Thank you for doing this, Walter. I love you. And it's it's fantastic to see you so happy and healthy and, and sounding great.
1: Joe, it's great to be here, man, and thank you for the kind words you said there. You know, and I, I'm I'm kind of overwhelmed really by it. I used to say to BB King, um, you know, BB, you're the greatest blues man of all time, and he would look at me, he called me Walt, and he'd say, "Walt, I'm just the guy trying to make a living playing my guitar," and he, and you know, that's how I feel. I'm I feel so lucky that I've been at this now for. 51 years and I'm able to have a career you know
0: it's 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 great you know one of the things it's it's I always tell kids now that they're starting it's a marathon not a sprint and when you get to you know get to 20 years or 30 years or 40 years or 50 years you want to look back and go you know I've 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 done the same thing with the same intentions as when I started off when I'm I was 22 and like when I when I when I hear you play you have the same intent, you have the same joy for the music, you have the same, I don't know, just just youthful enthusiasm for the blues than you know, as you did when you were just starting out as a guitar player, you know, in, in in Ocean City, New Jersey. So it's it's like, how do you keep that enthusiasm
1: going? Oh man, I have to tell you that when I'm playing. And it doesn't happen all the time. And you'll, you've done so many gigs, you'll, you'll relate to this, that there are certain times when you're playing live, especially. I, I live to play live, right? And you, you get in this zone where you almost lose any feeling that you have a physical body and you become the sound that's coming out of the amplifier. And it is the most beautiful spiritual incredible high that nothing else in life compares to. And, and I know that that, that's the potential for that is always there. And it keeps me, um, trying to, to get better. I'm still trying to get better. I still sit and work on my technique and try to try to come up with new licks and new sounds and stuff. And I, I just, nothing affects me like music, nothing. So
0: tell me about your early your early life. When when did you start playing guitar? I know this is a cliche question, but I never asked you this. But um, like, what you know? Because I always say we all start the same way. We all start in our in our in our bedroom with a an acoustic yeah. guitar, something that maybe our parents gave us, or we found or bought. And That's, yeah, it, it, no matter if you're a stadium filler or or just a hobbyist, we all start the same way. So tell tell the fine folks here how to, how you got your start.
1: I'm going to give you a little bit of a long-winded answer here now, because it happened in phases. I, I started taking trumpet lessons when I was like six years old, and I was going to be a jazz trumpet player. And I really, uh, I wanted to be, you know, Miles Davis or Roy Eldridge or one of those guys, right? And um, I, for my 10th birthday my parents arranged that I got to spend the day with Duke Ellington and I got a trumpet lesson from Cat Anderson, hung out with Johnny Hodges and Roy, and Roy Gonzalez and all these. Um, but then when I was 10 years old, my brother came home, my older brother, I owe a lot to him. He came home and said, Walt, I know this is not the big band jazz you've been into, but I want you to listen to this. I think there's something here. And it was the very first album by Bob Dylan. Right. It had song for Woody Guthrie on there and and Man of Constant Sorrow and stuff. And I listened to it and there was something about it that grabbed me. The simplicity of it, but the ability to express so much emotion and such a message within such a simple form of like three chords. Yes. And so I'm like, wow, this is a whole new world I was not really aware of. And um, a, a couple days later, he came in and he said, hey, my girlfriend had this acoustic guitar sitting around. She didn't want it. Here's an acoustic guitar. And um, I started goofing around with it. And I got a chord book and I started learning Michael Rowe, The Boat Ashore, and, you know, Kumbaya right. and stuff that I could play at parties and think I'm cool. And I did that for a while, but I kept playing the trumpet in school. I played it all through high school in the orchestra and the, and the marching band. But um, so I, I got where I, I could finger pick and I could play uh, Don't Think Twice, It's All Right and stuff, you know. But then, and, and you will hear this story from guys of my generation. You'll hear it from a lot of them. February 9th, 1964, 8 o'clock. Channel 10 in Philadelphia Sunday night, the Beatles on Ed Sullivan, right? Everything in our lives changed. I was 13 years old. Everything changed in all of our lives that generation. The the world was not the same. And so I was like, I got to get an electric guitar now. I want to be in a band. And um, so I went out and I got the silver tone with the um, the speaker in the case. Right. Two for one. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I got that thing and I started trying to learn Beatles songs. And um, then in uh, 1965, once again, Ed Trout, my older brother, comes in and he goes, I know you're trying to learn guitar. I'm, I want you to sit down because when I play this for you, you're going to fall over. <laughs> and it was the first Paul Butterfield album with Michael Bloomfield. Yes. Born in Chicago and blues with a feeling. And um, now if you figure that that was 1965 and we were hearing, um, God bless him, but we were hearing Keith Richard and George Harrison guitar solos. And then here's Michael Bloomfield. And if you listen to that album now, it's still, it's it's just, it's incredible. It's like a, a tsunami that comes over you when you hear those guitar solos he's doing and um jumps out of the speakers
0: like you you put that up it jumps out of the speakers and you like we could spend months in the studio trying to figure it out but like you just go man it would they just walked in played their set or you know a truncated version of their live set and they had an album and that was it and you're like how do you do that
1: anymore yeah and he's playing a telly through a fender amp. he doesn't have any kind of overdrive on there but he's just you know, I was just floored. And and I have to say, I heard blues in my house because my dad had records by T-Bone Walker and John Lee Hooker and B.B. King. I think we were the first in the late 50s, the first suburban white family in Ocean City, New Jersey, where my dad was blasting T-Bone Walker records. Right. So right. I was lucky I'd heard the blues, but it didn't affect me like that. Bloomfield was playing that music, but with this fire in this this passion in this this rock and roll aggression and attitude that i had never heard before and um i i listened to that and i pretty much went to my mom not long after that and i said i know what i'm going to do with my life now i'm going to be a blues guitar player and that sound that that guy's making on that record mom i want to make that sound right and i have never I've never looked
0: back. Yeah. How did, how did how did, how did your parents take that when when you when you you told them like I want to be a professional musician cuz like a lot of times there's there's that there's that that, that crossroads in every kid's relationship with their parents yeah. in the sense that they go hey I'm really passionate about this and the parents want to support that but they also go oh, boy, I, really, I was really hoping he would you know, go to college and become an you know, a, a yeah. attorney or something like that. But, but then they, they always acquiesce and say, listen, you gotta let it, let the, you got to let your children follow their passions and, their, and, and what they want to do with their life. How, how did that go over?
1: I, I have to tell you that I was so lucky in that my parents, as soon as I said I want to be a musician, they both said, we think that's pretty cool. We think that's a good dream. And then a year or two later, my mom would say to me, Walter, because to her, I was Walter. I always loved that. Dad, I'm Walt. Mom, I'm Walter. I don't want to be Walt. Anyway, my mom said, you know, Walter, I hear you playing in your bedroom, and I think you can do it. I really believe you you can achieve what you're setting out to do. I think you have a talent. But she'd say, but you need to realize there's a lot of competition. You need to work hard. And the guy who works the hardest is going to go the farthest at this. Right. You know? But they never said to me, No, you need something to fall back on. You know that line. A lot of musicians, the parents, well, that's a nice dream, but you need something to fall back on. I, I told them, I don't want to fall back on anything. If I don't make it, if I'm not able to have a career as a musician, I I don't know what I'm going to do because this is all there is for me. And they never told me. Um, They were always supportive and always, um, it it was great. They were great about it.
0: My attitude always was, if my back's against a brick wall, I have no other place to go but forward. There you go. If my back's against a pillow, then I can go back further, you know. I never had a B plan either, and and you know I it was it's just you go out there and you go I'm going to do this because I'm passionate about it because I love it and I'm enthusiastic and hopefully that enthusiasm for the music is you know it, it, infectious where people people are like oh, you got to come see this guy. So tell me about the East Coast, North Jersey music scene. In like sixty nine seventy, when you were first starting out, like were you playing cover tunes, were you in like show bands, were you playing the blues, was it a mixture, I mean, was it original stuff, I mean, what was that scene like back in those days? Okay,
1: first I was in South Jersey, Ocean City is Atlantic city, oh, my, my. but still it's a whole scene back there, right? Um, I want to go back and just tell you that when I got into ninth grade, I met a fellow named Jack Jacket, and it was like meeting Paul McCartney. He could play every instrument. He wrote great songs. He sang great. And he and I started bonding and playing together, and he showed me a lot on the guitar. So all through high school, I was playing with him, and we had little bands that would go out on the weekends and play in bars. But right out of high school, he went to westchester university um outside philly and he started a band with these music students and i became the guitar player and that band was a cover band um we had a horn line and we did chicago and we did blood sweat and tears and we would do uh sam and dave and and otis redding and and stuff like that and we would take songs like stone songs like brown sugar and we turn it into a horn band song we were very popular and we worked all the time Um, we were playing in clubs for people to dance to right and there is especially in the summer in jersey there's a huge scene of clubs all along the coast yes and um you know so we did that circuit And we worked a lot. And um, an interesting story is that a lot of the clubs, um, like the Dunes Till Dawn and Bridgeport and places like that, a lot of the clubs would have two stages. There'd be a stage on either side and there'd be two bands. Soon as one band would finish, the other band would start. Right. And we used to do gigs with a a local band called Steel Mill, Mm -hmm. which the guitarist was Bruce Springsteen. (laughs) and uh What's happened to that guy <laughs> potential <laughs> but he was playing lead guitar and and he wasn't that good of a lead guitar player and they were doing covers too you had right. to do covers to work in the clubs we were all 17 18 years old right and yeah. um i used to tell them man you know you got to work on your guitar playing man and uh <laughs> i thought i was hot stuff you know and uh right. I say, man, you know, we'd be outside in the parking lot, you know, and I would go, man, you got to work with your guitar playing, man. And he'd go, well, I'm writing songs, and I go, well, I hope they're good songs, man, you know, because uh, and uh, so that was interesting. But that band we worked for a while, um, and then I, it, it sort of things fell apart a little bit, and and I kind of kind of took the band, and I got rid of the horn line, and I started doing all my own originals in fronting the band, and at that point, nobody wanted to hear us anymore. Right. <laughs> there right. was no work, you know. Yeah. And uh, basically, the way I ended up out here in California was I had that band where I was leading the band, and it was a four-piece like I have now. Were you, you know? singing at that time? You, were, you I was singing, I was writing the songs, and a lot of the songs ended up on my first two albums. Right. You yeah. know, and... Um, I was trying to be a songwriter and I was I really wanted to to provide some musical direction and not just do covers, you know, yeah. and um, but we, we couldn't get a gig. And it was just it was brutal what happened. And I came to California on a vacation and uh, I saw that there was a big club scene and bands like mine were working. So I went back and said to the band, we got to move to California. This band could do great. We could go there and work. And they said, yeah. So we're going to save our money. We're going to come to California as a band, you know, and, and uh, all for one, one for all and all this. And one by one, they dropped out. Uh, I don't feel like going. I don't feel like going. And one day I said, okay, I'm going on my own. That's it. I'm out of here. And, uh, You know, I can be brutally honest here and say I had a Volkswagen Beetle. In that Beetle, I put a Fender Super Reverb. I I put the back seat down. I had a Fender Super Reverb, a Gibson 335, a Martin D28, a mandolin, a trumpet, all my clothes. Um, Let's be brutally honest. I had a half a pound of weed, 30 hits of LSD and 150 bucks and uh, I hallucinated my way to California.
0: Stuff a guy can use, you know. Was, okay.
1: You know it's 1974. Okay. It's
0: really interesting cuz you know over the last month I've gotten to interview like a, a bunch of my heroes and friends and legends and you know great guitar players and one of the common denominators of the of the last month has it, been very eye opening to me. It's like and, and myself included, I started on the trumpet when I was 4.
1: Really and-
0: yeah, Neil Sean started off on the saxophone and the oboe. You were a trumpet player. There's a lot of brass early, you know, early musical experience for guitar players being in the, you know, a brass instrument. And yeah. and it's it's I never I, I could never get anything out of the trumpet and my dad had a, a, a Gibson S G and a and a guitar amp, and once he played an A chord, I go, I want involved in that. I don't want involved sure. Yeah, so, when you got to California, how did you run into guys like, you know, John Lee Hooker, you know, Percy Mayfield, the the great Big Mama Thornton? I mean, you, you're, you're, your list of people that you've played with, backed up, co- collaborated with, is I mean, it's Im- extremely impressive. I mean, that you were there with those people in their prime.
1: Yeah. Well, I got to California and I just started going around the clubs and saying, hey, can I sit in? You right. know, Were I, I you in Los Angeles in- at the time. Excuse me. You're in Los Angeles at the time. Well, I was in Orange County, which Orange is County. where I still am. Yeah. And um, so I'm, I'm 45 minutes south of yeah. Los Angeles. So it's basically LA, it's one big city. But I started going around to clubs and asking, can I sit in? And um, the first gig I had, I went into a club in Corona del Mar and they had this incredible country band. Um, And it was guys who were playing with Dolly Parton, these amazing guys, but none of them could sing. their vocals were horrible. And I went up and, um, (laughs) you know, I'd had a few drinks and I said, dude, I know every song by Hank Williams, Merle Haggard, Buck Owens, Patsy Cline, you name it. I know those songs. Let me sing one with you. Right.
0: And I got up and
1: I sang I Fall to Pieces. And I got the job. I became the stand-up lead singer in a country western band. And I did that for a while. That's and, amazing. Um, I said to them, you know, I play guitar. And they said, well, we have guitar players. We just need a singer. And a couple weeks later, after I had saved my money, I went out and bought the Stratocaster that's on the cover of all my records.
0: Right. And I brought it
1: in and I said, look, I just bought this. Could I try it? And they said, yeah, play a song. And they said, you never told us you could play like that. And I became the lead guitarist at that point. But um, what when it really took off for me, though, I was at a party. My girlfriend, um, I had a girlfriend in Los Angeles. And we went to a party in Laurel Canyon. And there was Jesse Ed Davis. I'm sure you know Jesse Ed Davis. And I was like in awe. And somebody said, Jesse's looking for either a keyboard player or a rhythm guitarist for his band. And I went over and said, hey, man, I'd like to audition for your band. And he said, who have you played with? And I said, well, I was in a bar band in Jersey. And he said, I just made a record with John Lennon. The bass player there just made a record with Rod Stewart. The drummer there plays with Steve Miller and Van Morrison. You think you can hold your own? I said, what do you got to lose? Let me play it. Anyway, I ended up getting a gig, and uh, so I played with Jesse Ed Davis for two years, and um, I learned so much from him, so much. Some of it would have been better if I didn't learn it. I might not have had to get a second liver, but um, musically, he was an incredible influence on me, and um, he became my dear friend and my mentor, and I spent two years running around L.A. playing the... The Starwood and Gazaris and all these clubs with him, and um, that really, coming from a little town in New Jersey, and suddenly playing with these these guys in L.A. who were the guys, right? Um, here's a here's a, here's a question for you, and
0: we're you know I've known you for a long time, and you're the sweetest, most humble person I know, but you're also a badass and can hang with anybody at any time where did that fearlessness come in when you were like, you're talking to Jesse Ed Davis and, and I like, go, well, I was in a bar band in Jersey and you're surrounded by all these people with resumes. Where did that fearlessness come in and you're like, well, just give me a shot. And then when you got the shot, not only getting the gig, but flourishing in it, how, how did, where where does that come from? Is that, is that an East coast thing or is that just, is it part of your personality going there's, there's the failure is not an option.
1: Well, I- it's funny you say an East Coast thing. I hadn't thought about it. But I think um, part of growing up in Jersey, you know, I mean, if you watch The Sopranos, um, I know it's a fictional show, but those are the guys I grew up with, you know. Um, but I, I never thought of it as, as fearlessness. I thought of it as I'm determined. It's right. determination. And, and even like, um, you know... When I would meet my idols, um, and I was a kid, I was still able to, to want to talk to them and, and, and relate to them, you know? And, um, so I, I know there is fear. There's plenty, but I, I believe that you face your fear. Um, you face your fear and you overcome it and you become a better person through it. and You become a stronger person through it.
0: Absolutely. Um, you know, one of one of the things that uh, always, uh, you know, I was always curious about is when you were touring with Heat and John Mayle. Yeah. In the eighties, you you had your you had this ability to put your in, indelible stamp because i've been listening to like some you posted some cool youtubes of you playing with can't in 83 and then you know you know john Mayle, and and i've been listening to john Mayle um, uh, live behind the iron curtain you know oh recently, yeah yeah you know, in hungary you know, like when, when that yes. was a big deal every time i hear those records and those see those videos you have this ability to put your indelible stamp on iconic music like you know when i hear john when i hear can't it's and then there's this guitar, even even rhythmically. And then when you solo, you go, well, there's Walter, you know. And it, and it, and it and it's like even if I'm a, in another room, even if I'm not conscious of what's on the the playlist, and if I hear you play, I go within five five notes, I know it's Walter Trout. How does that happen? Where you're putting these situations as a side man, as, as you're you're servicing somebody else's music and catalog, yeah. How do you go about approaching that as a musician? Do you go, I'm going to just do my thing? Or do you listen to the versions that have come before you and try to come up with like an amalgamation of your style? And let's, you know, I mean, God, I mean, John's had some, he's, John's had some decent guitar players. Playing <laughs> <like him. And laughs> I mean, yeah. you know, I mean, a couple of people you've heard of, Eric and Paul, you yeah. know, Peter and Mick, yeah. those kind of guys, you yeah. know. So how do, you, how do you then go, I have this huge legacy to tow behind me, but I also want to be my own man and my own player? How do you approach that?
1: That's a, very, that's a great question, Joe. Mm-hmm. And I can give you a story about when I got hired by John and I knew I was going to be playing with him. Mm-hmm. And he gave me the, set, the song list. I want you to learn these songs. And there were songs on there off the Blues Breakers album, the Beano album. Uh, yeah, and it was you know stepping out, and there was all these other tunes, and there were songs off the Crusade album, and um, the first show we did together was the the Caboose in Minneapolis, and I was up there. Wow, I'm playing with John Mayall. I I can't believe this, and I played the Eric Clapton solos note for note.
0: Right.
1: I'm like, this is what this guy wants. This is iconic music. The Eric Clapton solo on on Hideaway are stepping out. They're iconic solos. And I I learned them note for note, right? Yes. And we came off stage and he said, Walter, um, I'd like to talk to you. And I went, "Uh uh-oh. And he goes, if I'd have wanted Eric Clapton, I'd have called him up. I hired you because I love the way you play. So I want you to be free. You don't have to play Eric Clapton. I want to hear what Walter Trout can do to those songs. And he freed me. And that was just beautiful. I went to my room and I started crying. I was like, okay, I can play these tunes, but I I can, what can I add to them now? This is, I'm free to experiment. I'm free to, I can grow here. I can learn, you know. And um, so that was an amazing night for me.
0: That's it. you know, and it's, it's you know, we both know John, you've known him long, much longer than I have. I always find him to be the most supportive and just wonderfully joyous musician that I've ever met. He just loves it and, and is so supportive of guitar players and, and has given them a platform and a stage and, and, and you know, attention. It's like, it, it, it must be tough, though, when you're like given a blank canvas on iconic music to then go, okay, what do I do with this now? Because, you know, we all, like you said, we all learn those solos. We all worship that stuff because of, of that. That was our gateway to the, yeah. to, to the masters. You know, my yeah. gateway came through the British. John Mayall, Jeff Beck Group, you know, yeah. Cream. And, and yes. all, my gateway was, even Jethro Tall the first couple of albums were very- Oh, Martin Barr. Yeah. He was fantastic. And was there, was, there was always a blues element. I'm like, well, where's this coming from? So I heard all those guys before I heard Howlin' Wolf and Muddy Waters and yeah. and Robert Johnson. Um, one of the things, tell me about Luther Allison, because I know you were friends with him. And yeah. one of the people that I never met and always had the, just the highest amount of respect for and think he's one of the greatest ever. I think he belongs up there with the B.B.s and the Hollow Wolves and Albert Kings and Albert... I mean, he belongs in the echelon of blues musicians. And when I hear like like Bad News and and all those songs that he did, it just... You go, how... How wasn't he like a huge international superstar? He was a big name, a big star. But he was... It was never mentioned, I think, criminally in the same sentence as the greats.
1: Um, And I I agree with you completely, and that's why I did that tribute album to him where I did all his songs. I wanted to bring attention to him. I can tell you that um, I met him back when I first started with John Mayall, so that would have been 1984. And we did a lot of shows together and hung out, and I always found him to be one of the most sincere, no front put up. When you talk to him, you get exactly who he is. Um, there, there's no facade put up with that man. He, he was heart and soul and it was right there for you. If yeah. you were open to it. Yeah. And he was charisma. Like it, it was hard to describe the man. When he walked into a room, the room kind of lit up with his energy and his charisma, right? And, but when he played live, he gave it 150%, right? And, um, you know, he was known for doing four hour shows, right? And when I did the tribute album to him, his rhythm player, James Solberg, who'd been with Luther for 20 years, um, I was talking to him, and I said, what, what's with the four-hour shows? He goes, One day, we asked him, he said, because we're, we're doing night after night after night, we're traveling in a van, and then he's doing four hours. He goes, we're like, we're like, we can't keep this up. Why are you doing four hours? And what Luther said, he said, I want to establish eye contact with every single person in the room. It's amazing. And when I get their eye contact, I want to play to them. And then I'm going to go to the next person and play to him. And I'm going to establish a, a contact in a, a bond, a musical bond with every single person in that room. And he goes, and I don't want to leave until I do that. And that, that is just, that's what this music is about. It's about communication and and the bond between the audience and the performer, and it's about establishing a feeling and an emotion um, in, in the listener. It's about us together, the energy going back and forth and, and experiencing our kind of common humanity. And he was the master of that,
0: you yeah. know? Yeah, yeah. And I, I always tell people, like, because, you know, we're now we're in this new normal of, of everybody speculating how we're going to tour again and what it's going to look like. And they say, well, you know, they could do virtual shows to a virtual audience. And I always said, yes, but that's sound check for me. Sound check is 60 and, and, it, and it goes across the whole the whole dais, my entire band. It's not like they're just mailing it in. They're playing the best that they can at 430 it's but it, it's about 65% of what it is when you get people in the audience because to me the audience represents 35% of the total show it's that energy that you get back it's what it's how you're reacting it's who you're looking in the eye it's 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 the joke you make on stage because somebody yells out something funny you don't get that with the virtual shows you know, and, and the blues, the way we do it, is it, it's so intertwined. It's symbiotic in the sense. Yeah. You and the audience, it's they're part of the performance. The whole thing becomes one. Tell me about like, speaking of like four hour shows and the road, you have the reputation of doing, well, you tour like John Mayall. If you have 25 days on the tour, You'll tour. You'll do twenty-five shows, or maybe in
1: twenty-five 20, cities
0: in twenty-five <laughs> cities in twenty-five days without a day off. Yeah. So, as a guy who who does five shows a week with two days off, how the hell do you do that? How, how do you how do you you get up every day and you travel? I mean that that is a brutal touring schedule. I mean that makes me look like a like a weekend warrior.
1: Well, I can tell you one thing. Um, nobody tours harder than Mr. Mayall. I can't do what he does. I can give you an example. When I first joined him, and this is the honest to God truth, we did a tour, 75 cities in 68 days. <laughs> Got to think about that one. Oh, my God. And, and we used to g- complain. We'd be like, oh, my God, John, you know, come on. And he used to have a phrase. He'd go, sleep when you get to L.A. <laughs> and, uh, and he would say, we're out here to work. You're not on vacation. Yep, You're out here to work. And, um, but he always had the way of, of always keeping it lighthearted and humorous. He, he'd be in the dressing room and he'd go, well, you guys certainly look like you're just about dead. Yeah. And he'd go, well, now we let's go out there. Let's see what you're made of. Come on, boys, you know. And uh, he would challenge us. Now, I, I can't anymore since my liver transplant tour quite the way I used to. I used to do maybe maybe 60 days in a row of, of without a day off. And, six, um, six, yeah, six, I, I would do that. I, I did one time with my band, I did a um, 10-week tour of Europe, and I think we had two days off. And those were days that we had like four airplane flights, you know, And, um, but I, I kind of enjoy the challenge, right? Sometimes I have to say that I'll be sitting in the, I'll be in the dressing room and I'm like, I can't do it. I am completely drained. I'm like a dish rag that has been, and I have nothing more to give. And then you walk out on the stage and these people stand up and they applaud and they look at you like they're ready they're, they're looking to you for something right? that they're, they're expecting to get from you. And, and they're, mm-hmm. you can see the anticipation and the excitement. And for the next hour and a half or two hours, you find it in yourself. And it's this incredible experience. Yeah. Um, sometimes it's tough if, if you're in that kind of shape and you go out and you have an audience that's that's kind of just sitting there. What John Mayall would call playing to an oil painting. He right. used to call some of the gigs that. But um, then you have to dredge it up, and then it's a little difficult, right? A, yeah, yeah. The adrenaline, off the energy of the crowd,
0: man. It's a, it's that's amazing. That's an amazing feat of endurance. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, so I'll say at the end, you get home and you go, "I did it."
1: I did it, man. You know, yeah,
0: it's a great accomplishment. I mean, when you play the Albert Hall, what do you sound check, or do you sound
1: check? Do you do? do I I played the Albert Hall just once, and I did a sound check. When I actually love the sound in that place,
0: it's great. Yeah,
1: yeah, it's incredible.
0: I I what what songs do you sound check? Do you sound check your own material, or do you go okay? I want to hear. It's it's time to bust out the cream covers or. The, the yeah, you
1: goof around. Um, when I when I sound-checked in Albert Hall, though, I, I had a band of British guys who were going to back me up. It was not my own band. Right. So we went over the songs I was going to do. You right. know? But I, I, the sound in there, you know, they've hung those things from the ceiling that look like big balloons or something yeah. for acoustics. And it's incredible in there, sound-wise. I mean, stage sound, right?
0: it's it's the best reverb you never had in your amp yes yeah it's they they should they should sell a plug-in that's the Albert Hall reverb you know yeah. um, one of the things you know we we uh, you know one of the dangerous things you could ever do is read articles about yourself or posts or things and you you came out with a, t- a t-shirt a few years back that the same thing has been said about me and many others that have, have followed this path. And you, you actually immortalized it on a t-shirt. Too loud, too many notes. Yes. And that's been said to me actually by people. You know, yeah. how was the show? It was too loud and you played too many notes. Yeah. What 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 makes you just, you know, at, the, at that the, you know, because those earworms get inside your head and you're like, oh, maybe I could turn down or divide by two or whatever. What just says, you know, screw it, I'm just going to do it. I, I am who I am. And and it, you just let it flow out of you. You know, I'm like, how, how, do you, how, do you, how do you reconcile that? You, you don't let any of that seep
1: into well, you. I, I realized at an early point in my career that you're never going to please everybody. No, Um, especially in the blues, because there's a lot of very opinionated people. Right. And uh, I I just got got a comment yesterday. You're much too busy for me or something. Right. And and what you have to do, I I finally decided I instead of being up on the stage thinking, oh, I better censor. I I feel like playing this lick. I hear it in my head. I want to play it. But that guy out there might not like it. He wants to hear me play one note and hold it, right? So I better censor it. And and then you're not being honest to yourself. You know, you and I are not, we're not from Clarksdale, Mississippi, and we didn't pick cotton. The way we can be authentic in our music is to be honest, is to play who we are and be able to go to that hotel afterwards and look in the mirror and go, I gave them Walter Trout tonight. That's who I am. I didn't censor it. I played exactly what I want. And, and you can play a thousand notes as long as you feel every one of them. Exactly. Um, and so, you know, I, I went through a phase of, of, oh, I better slow down. I better do this. I better. Do, and then I went, no, I have to play what the higher power puts the music in my head and I'm just the, I'm a radio, I'm receiving the signal and it's coming through me and I'm not going to stifle it or censor it. I'm going to, when I get to the end of my life, I'm going to go, what I gave them was honest. I, I'm honest.
0: It, it, it,
1: maybe I'm, I'm not this, I'm not that, I, but whatever talent I've been given, I've, nurtured it and developed it to the best of my ability and tried to share it with the world. And um, so when I got that, when I got an email from a guy, hey, I came to see you and you played too many notes and you were too loud. I went to my wife, Marie, who has managed my career for years and I said, I want to own this. I want to proclaim it to the world. This way they know what they get instead of saying, hey, how come this? I said, hey, you knew in advance what you were going to get. People who come to see me want to hear me play too many notes. And, and um, so, yeah, I put it on a shirt in big, big letters. And I've had a couple people say, you need to break that out again. You know, Love it.
0: I, I thought it was the greatest T-shirt ever. Um, question. <laughs> you know, I've always said it was when I was when I was a kid, I looked to you and I looked to Gary Moore as a proof of concept that. If you come out with a rock blues, unapologetic, just energetic guitar playing show, that people will come out for that. I I, I consider you one of one of the, the, the foremost forefathers of that movement. Like in the in the in the late 80s, early 90s, especially in Europe. You you. you know, to me, it's like when I heard you and then Gary Moore when he did "Still Got the Blues." I'm like, you know, I I can do that. It gave me the confidence to say, you know what, if I work hard and I apply myself and, and you know, and, and and kind of look up to you guys, who on the scene now, um, who who on the scene now that you've noticed has, you know, kind of caught your ear lately? Like, who are some of your favorite people on the scene, some of the younger generation of players?
1: Well, you certainly, and you're a younger generation than this old guy. Right. You know, Um, I have to say, I think there is a whole crop of young guitar players who who, um, I think this music is in a very healthy state. There's a lot of really great young guitar players out there. The ones I'm most aware of, though, are the English guys. Um, Danny Bryant. He's great. Um, I I think that guy is incredible, you know, and he writes these songs that are just Gut wrenchingly honest and beautiful, and from his heart and his soul, and, and plays like his life depends on it. And um, there's a band called King King with with uh, Alan Nimmo and now his brother Steve. Both of those guys are incredible. Yeah, uh, there, there's a whole bunch of them in England. I'm I'm kind of not a, quite awake yet to think of all the names, but uh, Mitch Laddie. I don't know if you've heard Mitch Laddie. I've heard Mitch, young, yeah. young British guy, and I actually. Um, met him when he was 15 and he came in the dressing room and played my guitar. And I was like, man, you're awesome. So I invited him to the Paradiso and um, I had him sit in with me and he ended up getting a record deal with Provo when he was 16. That's great. Uh, uh, so, I mean, there is a bunch of them out there, you know. Um, I'm, I'm, Brain isn't functioning too well, but those guys stand out to me.
0: There's a huge crop of of of, of, of young adults. I don't. I, I refuse to. You know, they're not kids, but they're young adults that that are really enthusiastic about the blues, doing a different spin on it. And I think the legacy of the blues, you know, because like when we used to talk to BB King, you know, um, he was he was his only concern was that the music lives on past him. Keep yes. it going. Keep it alive. Keep the blues alive. Um, you have a new album coming out August 28th. It's called Ordinary Madness. And yeah. I, I, I listened to your song, Wanna Dance. And to me, it brought me back to when I first heard you. You know, it, it's, 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 for better, you know, better term or not, it's classic Walter Trout. It's why everybody fell in love with you in the first place. It's a great song. You're playing great. You're singing great and you know your lyrics are very you know topical and and and, uh and you know poignant what um what keeps you going because you've done 29 studio albums i mean like how do you go how do you keep how do you keep it all in the filing cabinet going did i write this song 30 years ago because it it gets tougher as you go along you're like start repeating yourself but to me it doesn't sound like anything you've ever done But it sounds like classic Walter Trout to me. So, like, my hat's off to you for keeping it fresh, but keeping it, you know, in the family.
1: Yeah, um, I'm really happy with that song. And sometimes when I listen to it, I go, my word, did that come out of me? Right. You know, um, and I do, I sound like I'm 25 years old on there, you know. Yeah. But but, um, as far as the writing, um, I'm not a guy who is always... Always writing songs. I'm not sitting in the band between cities uh, trying to come up with songs, but I do have the thing in my phone. Yeah. And normally if my wife goes to bed like at nine o'clock, she gets tired. I sit on the couch. Mm -hmm. I got a little rolling cube amp. I put a movie on with subtitles Mm -hmm. and I sit there and I play till about two in the morning. Right. And all of a sudden, a, a musical idea, I go, oh, that's pretty cool. I put it in the phone. Right. You know? And um, also, with this album, um, I, I had gone through a period of a lot of sort of self-reflection where I, I I have to say, since I came out of the liver transplant and came back from it, um, I get a lot of messages very well-intentioned messages from beautiful people saying, you know, you're an inspiration and we look up to you and we look up to you and Marie as a couple. And, and I want to say, God, that's great. And, and I, I love you for it, but I, I need you to know, um, I'm still pretty messed up from certain things I went through as a kid and I'm still, Filled with self doubt at times. It's not so. That's the fearlessness. There's no fearlessness. It's confronting the fear. Confident. I'm filled with self doubt and I'm filled with with um, lots of mental stuff. And I would ride in the van and I'd write notes about myself, what I was thinking about myself. Like um the the third song on the album is called My Foolish Pride and. I, I got out a notebook from the van, and I saw that I had written, sometimes I do my best, but I fail. Mm. I know it happens to everybody. Yes. Then I try to hide away my shame, but I get all wrapped up in myself. Yeah. And it doesn't really matter much in the bigger scheme of things, but I know it's just my foolish pride. And I looked at it, and I went, okay, there's a song. There's So I had to write the next two verses, but that became the first verse of the song. And um, the writing on here is very, it's about as honest as I can be. It's about as, here I am, man. And uh, like the lyrics on Want to Dance, I've been a criminal. I've been a clown. I've been a victim of desires that only brought me down. Right. And um, so I, I have to make music. And sometimes when I've had this in the past, Joe, where my wife will say to me, "I'll be sitting around." She'll say, "Hey, Walter, uh, you're in the studio in two weeks," and I go, "Yeah, what about it?" And she goes, "What are you going to record?" <laughs> I go, "Oh, oh no." That so I got two weeks to write an album, right? Um, I've I've gone through that before too, where I have to come up with it quickly. But when that happens, th- there are times where I sit back and I go, 29 albums, 28 albums, I have nothing left to say. Right. I, I'm done. I, I, can't, I can't come up with anything. And then I hear this. I'm going to cry here, but I hear the voice of my mom. And she says, Walter, you wanted to be a musician. You're a musician. Now quit whining and make music. Right. What you do is make music. Just make some music. It's what you do, dude.
0: You know? Well, I can attest to how fast you are writing a song. When we first collaborated, I was has to be 13, 14 years ago, we, we did a song called Clouds on the Horizon. Yeah. It was with the late Richie Hayward on drums and we recorded it in Los Angeles. And, and we, just, we just came up with a groove. You came up with a groove and we just did a song. And you're like, well, here's some lyrics. And you just jotted them down on a piece of paper. Literally, you wrote the song on the spot. And it's well, like, I was like, how do I do that? You well, know? you know,
1: the great story about that, if you remember, we were going to do Rock Me Baby.
0: Right, that's right. And, yeah.
1: and, and I had brought in a boogie amp for you. Right. Right? And, and you went over to the boogie, and you were setting the amp, and you were playing with one hand while you were setting the amp. You had your, one of your Les Pauls. And you went, Dan and Dan, Dan. <laughs> and I went, what's that lick? You said, I don't know. I said, we can make a song out of that lick, remember? Exactly, exactly. minutes later, we had the song. We had
0: the, we had the song. We were singing it, and it was, it was great. Before we wrap up, Walter, um, as a guitar geek, i got to ask you, like, like the 73 Olympic white strap, the iconic Walter
1: Trout strap, which I
0: see right over your left shoulder.
1: I, I brought it out. I figured you might want to know about it.
0: And how many gigs do you
1: think that guitar has played in its lifetime? My God, I, I have no idea, man. Um, how about if I sh- just show it to you and we'll try to figure it out. Now, I, but before I bring it over here, you need to know it was bright white. I, I, I bought it off the shelf. It's a 73. I bought it brand new. I'm the only owner. And I was the guy who, because, because you're not supposed to like 70s strats, I always like to do, when people say you shouldn't do this and you shouldn't do that, I always do it, right? So exactly, this was bright white <laughs> in 1974 when I bought it off the shelf. Right, and that is what touring uh, with you know, this is John Mayall and Canned Heat and and uh, John Lee Hooker and Big Mama Thornton and Percy Mayfield and Lowell Folsom and Eddie Cleanhead Vincent and all those guys. And here's the uh, the headstock, the headstock. but it's uh, that's what. That's why uh, I have a problem when Fender does their relics, you know? Yes. I go, that's got to be earned. Yeah. I mean, look at the back of this thing. My gut has worn worn the finish off, you know? You
0: you know, after all of these years, and knowing that guitar after all these years, today is the first time I realized, and I should be better than this with my eyes, that the first time I realized it's a hardtail. It's a non trip bar.
1: Yeah. I never knew what to do with a whammy bar. Me either. Um, And and I, you know, I was, I was, my guys back then were, like I say, Mike Bloomfield, Eric Clapton. Right. um, Roy Buchanan. And none of them had whammy bars. And, And I used to think, well, wouldn't it be cool to see what kind of sounds I can create without a whammy bar, but try to make it sound like it has a whammy bar. Right. And I never knew what to do with the whammy bar except for the dive bombing thing. And, and now I watch Jeff Beck and I go, man, I wish I had gotten a whammy bar when I was a kid. I might, you know, because he's uh, taken the whammy bar to a whole new place. Right. He's he's. Yeah, he's out of this role. Walter,
0: yeah. I love you. I th- you're you're an international treasure and I'm honored to be your friend. And thank you for doing this. And I hope, I really hope one in hope one day soon we can get together in three D and play too many notes, way too loud.
1: Oh, that would be great. I, and sometime, I, I, you know, if you'd like, let's write a song together, man. I could it. write you a song.
0: I man, mean, I'd uh, I love to. I would love to. Joe, Later.
1: thank you, man, for having me on your
0: show. Anytime, ladies and gentlemen, the legendary Walter Trout, my friend and yours in my opinion, one of the greats and one of, one of the greatest ever and one of the nicest human beings on the planet. Thank you for doing this. Uh, it's been, a, it's been an honor.
1: Joe, thank you for having me. It's been an honor. And, um, y- you have been great to me and I-, I look forward hopefully to getting back on that cruise with you sometime and jam it too.
0: That was, that was fun. That was quite the, um, yeah. that, was quite, that was, that was, it was, I call it every time you get more than three guitar players, with the proclivity to play a lot of notes, it's guitar-mageddon. It's awesome.
1: <laughs> it exactly. is awesome. It's what we live for, man.
0: Exactly. All right, ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much. Tune in next week. My guest will be the great Kev Mo. My thanks to Walter Trout. Thank you so much. Please give great my love great. to your wonderful wife, Marie, and everybody for me.